Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irving Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Okay, here we go. Oh, tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. Oh, welcome back to another episode of A Typical Disgusting Display, a podcast for writers by writers who hate writing. Uh, today, we're going to be talking to Courtney Lilly. We're excited Ooh. for that. Uh, yes. Goldie, you worked with him on The Cleveland Show. He ran Blackish for many years. Some and uh, he's just a, such a nice guy. I can't wait to talk to him. Yeah, he's uh, awesome. Yeah. He and once uh, did a pilot with Baron Davis. Really? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's pretty nice. Basketball player. player. What? Yeah. Golden wow. State Warriors. That's Goldie's team. Yeah, I was like, I'm like, no, that's I know Goldie's that name. Team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even back then? Roots. Even back then? Yeah. No, Baron yeah. Davis is legit. Um, a forgotten superstar, I would say, along the lines of Agent Zero, Gilbert Arenas. Oh, wow. He's not forgotten. He's got a huge podcast. Yeah. Well, we don't. Oh. Um, <laughs> we really don't. <laughs> so uh, next week, I'm excited because we're going to be talking to Josh Mankiewicz. And you're thinking, yes. that name's familiar. He's one of the correspondents on Dateline. And he and I have oh, no. somehow... You're being, be- you're being set up. I know. Well, that, that's my hope is that I can be good enough friends with him that when the inevitable happens, I won't get looked at. Um, yeah. Sit down. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you didn't do that, did you? That's my Josh Mankowitz. You didn't do that, did you? Um, he He's coming on next week. We've uh, formed a friendship over Twitter that has now turned into... Dinner dates. Oh, I've had real life. With, with I, I, he's in my my uh, text notifications as Mank, and his grandfather wrote Citizen Kane. So we're oh. going to talk to him about NBD? all kinds of stuff next week. Wow, which is exciting. Yeah. Um, this week there was something I was very excited about, and it involves one of our co-hosts, one Julius Alcinder Goldblatt. <laughs> um, and, and just to to give you a, a little background. It, I'm sure you all know that the three of us work at Family Guy together. And people often ask, you know, how do you come up with the stories for Family Guy? Of course, we're in season 20-whatever now, so we we have to come up with a ton of stories all the time. So usually what happens is we'll have, you know, our summer break or, you know, the break in between seasons and people come back and we have a couple of days where we sit down and pitch story ideas. Writers will come in with, you know, maybe three or four kind of written out. 
But with the strike and with COVID, kind of that that story day has kind of been lost for the last few years. So what we end up doing is writers will just kind of email us their story ideas whenever it occurs to them. And and it's been a good system. And we obviously we're getting enough stories uh, that it's working out. So Goldie sent in a few, uh, well, this was just one. I think this was just a singular one. He sent in a story idea the other day. Now, let me give you a little background here. So if you watch the show, you know this, but maybe if you don't watch the show, one of the characters on the show is Chris. He's the teenage son, Chris Griffin. And being a teenage boy, sort of a running joke we've had for him over the seasons is that he masturbates. You know, that's kind of what teenage boys do. So we often get an individual joke here or there about, you know, him masturbating. So Goldie's email comes in and just the top line, which is the, you know, a, 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 just a few words which encapsulates this story idea. And I was fucking knocked off my couch laughing <laughs> because just this one line is, Goldie, go ahead. Subject. Give, they call it the subject of the email. The subject. <laughs> go, go ahead. Go, and give us what it was. I want to give you the 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 opportunity to say it here. Oh, I'll, I want to make sure I get the wording exactly yes. correct. <laughs> because it said subject, story idea, dash, Chris rips his dick off. <laughs> <laughs> you write JC, yourself. give that the first joke <laughs> oh, of the sorry. day. God damn it. That would... <laughs> First joke of the day. First joke I mean, of the day. So, <laughs> but you know, to tell you the truth, no matter what show we were working on, that would be an area I would pitch. Right. Yes, yes. No, it was a very goldy pitch. It was go- it was very goldy for a few reasons. Uh, one, masturbation. Two, right rips, way you know, rips his dick off <laughs> like just that. And, and, and you know, I'm I am laughing to myself all day about this pitch, and I I do believe that it's the best subject line for a pitch that I've that I've ever seen. Wow! It really knocked me out. I thought it was so awesome, <laughs> and then of course, immediately within the course of the day, we realized we can't do it. But it, it, for fine. those brief few hours, I was living in this world of Chris ripping his dick off <laughs> and just so excited about the potential of this episode. I still hold out hope we can do it. Yeah, because I, 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 I feel like it. it <laughs> yes, to me, it, it, it there was a serious point to it, which is like you know masturbation has become like lime scooters <laughs> that, yeah. that uh, no one like agreed on it or whatever and lime scooters are everywhere but sort of in the last 20 years i mean no one used to talk about masturbation like it was a shameful thing to even yeah. bring up it was obscene like yeah and now it's it's sort of the dominant form of sexual expression and and pornography is free and everywhere and i just thought like this kid left to his own <laughs> Is, gets so vigorously into it, and no one's educating him that he rips off his own dick would be oh the starting God. point for yes. you know a story about that. Yes, left left to his own devices on his own devices would be oh. the way that would go. But I mean, but, like I said, I can I can wherever whatever show I work for in the future, I can just pitch it. I mean, it's it's evergreen. Oh, yeah, yeah it's, that's a that's a blossom every, reboot. It is evergreen. That's there's your season one of the blossom, blossom reboot. Yeah, oh somebody. God. But I the, I appreciate your appreciation of it because you know as as you get oh. older. God. And you do this, you just kind of go, 
I mean, the constant feeling is I have no ideas, right? right and so sure. the fact that when you don't actively ask me for a story idea and that the assumption is just let us know when you have an idea, it's like, dude, you're never going to hear from me again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I need someone to tell just me, we're going to fire you if you don't have an idea. Right. Then I'll have an idea, but yes. I'm not going to have an idea Unless there's, like, a direct threat to my <laughs> existence going forward. <laughs> so, now, I actually had that idea. I I remember exactly when I got it because I was pointlessly walking around Disney in the middle of the strike. And I said, like, well, when we get back, I'm going to need an idea. So, might as well start thinking now. And then I typed in my phone, Chris rips his dick off. And I was like, okay, that, that'll buy me six months. <laughs> Absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, that's bought you a, a whole season of like that, that laughter. I will think about that and chuckle probably like once a week for the next year. That was, oh God, thank you for that, that laugh. I needed that. But it's also, you know, to, to our point of this whole podcast for writers, um, by writers, this is a part of the writing process is coming up, obviously, like because people sometimes think, oh, it's just about, you know, writing a joke and sitting in a room. But no, it we have to come up with these stories. We don't always know where they're going to come from. And to have something like that is just like a real shot in the arm. And it kind of makes you feel like, all right, even if we can't immediately get to work on Chris Rips his dick off. <laughs> Just the phrase Chris rips his dick off is enough to make me believe in the power, the wonder, the wonder of of writing and comedy for, for a while. And I'll say, I'll say, you know, the, yeah. the lesson and as as I get older, I learn it more and more is don't waste your boss's time. Like right. I, I could come to you with all sorts of flowers, but it's like, here's five words. Yes. Yes and or no. <laughs> and those five words. And that's another. And if not, it was eight seconds of your time. Maybe. Yes. Right. right. And 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 it turned it's going to turn into hours and hours of great laughter in my life. And th but that's also <laughs> a, a, an incredible lesson for aspiring writers out there is that an economy of words can be so powerful because it was it was Chris rips his dick off five words. <laughs> OK, and that that yeah. is is funnier than any pitch that I've heard in a really long time. So maybe don't get obsessed. It's interesting with pitching stories because you're either going to hit a home run like that with five words or maybe you do want to go, go the route of being very detailed in what you well, see in a story. But here's the thing is you still need the five words because what I'll say is having pitched stories in a room numerous times, the, the worst thing you can do is you start on a story. No one ever starts skeptical of a story and then buys into the story. Right. They only like the story and then like it more. So you know wow. with the five words whether you should do the rest of it. Right. That's huge and advice there. That's if they really like the five words, if even if they don't like what follows, they'll say, I love the area, but I, you know, whatever, we'll work. That's what the room's for is to work out those yes. details. So I used to think, oh, I want to be prepared. I'm going to come in and have these incredible turns and whatever. But that's sort of like if you planned a date and you just sort of rehearsed how you thought it was going to go. And it's like right. it might it just might not go that way. <laughs> right. So, right. That's a good analogy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I just I, I think, you know, 
not I, I wouldn't say to anyone like don't prepare and don't think ahead and I would say always have more if they say well where do you see it going you don't want to go oh I didn't because I just came up with I'm five stupid words. and yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. ahead and I thought you would do the work I mean, <laughs> you want to have a way that it can go but I would just say also like part of the joy in it for the person in charge is adding to it and then having some ownership of it yes. and going like, oh, when I hear that, I think this. And then you as the writer go, yes, that's why I tell you shit because you're such a fucking genius with that stuff. And then the person goes, ah, I feel really, now I really like this writer. And you go, I love you too, boss. <laughs> boss person. Um, well, then that brings us to something. We, we got a nice email this week um, from... Uh, how did we describe this? An amateur writer. Yes, and they describe themselves that way. I would. Yes, Carla McGee. So I would. You know, we didn't go. Yeah. Well, this person's a fucking. No, they they like, self described self described yes. amateur writer. So we were thinking that would be if there are more aspiring writers, shall we say, there out go. there? Because mm-hmm. often we get emails from people who say. I'm not in the business. I don't want to be, but I like your podcast. And then other people who listen are already working in the business. But if you're if you're in between, if you're thinking about I want to be a writer, I I want to be in this business, but I have some questions. Send us your questions. We'll try our best to answer them. Uh, send them in to an us. episode. We were thinking we could do an episode. Yeah, we, yeah. we build an episode around these emails. So if you have any questions, good if you're questions. an aspiring writer and and you're too embarrassed. Uh, to ask them somehow, or you don't have the opportunity to do that, send us those questions to a typical disgusting display at gmail.com. And, and they can be anonymous, like when I was in sex ed class and they put an anonymous <laughs> question basket in front of the class and then they read them, and one of them was, When do you get dick control? <laughs> <laughs> was that your question? No, okay. I was not worried. I, can't I was not even in a position where dick control. <laughs> was a relevant factor in anything that was going on. (laughs) He said, just off with their heads, rip it off. (laughs) Um, All right, well, so Goldie, thanks for that pitch, and please write us some questions. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Uh, we're going to talk to Courtney Lilly after our own version of torture that we like to call Johnny Jokes. Whoa, from Hollywood, right next to scenic Glendale, here's Johnny. Oh, yes. Uh, yes, sir. Hey-o. Okay, right into it. Uh, the airlines revealed that nowadays all transatlantic flights are flying at the speed of sound. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Unfortunately, the sound is a crying baby in 17C. (laughs) Mm. Yep, that's a Johnny. That's a Johnny. (laughs) Traditional Johnny. That's a Wednesday night, middle of the monologue. (laughs) Yes. You say it. I I, the next one. I heard something, uh, somebody referenced Johnny Carson uh, in some interview that I was watching and said that this was the Johnny you came to love. He'd get up there, he'd tell his 24 jokes a night. And I was like, 24? Holy <laughs> shit. 
we do four or five a week and it's absolutely torture so yeah. god bless him rest in peace and no Johnny. one was happier than him oh yes <laughs> hope he's got a carton of cools somewhere in heaven um all right get that finger ready we JC. all want to die alone on a boat don't we yeah <laughs> with, with, a, with a with a wife named uh well, he he married like three women with the same name i forget what it was was it but... joanna Joanna, exactly oh, right. Nice. <laughs> Someone named Joanna just waiting to get his money. Um, JC, get that finger ready because sad story. Former Indiana basketball coach Bobby Knight oh. has passed away at the age of 81. He gone! Yeah, per the coach's wishes, he will be cremated and tossed across a gym floor during a free throw. <laughs> oh, wow. That's all anyone knows about him these yeah. days. Uh, and maybe you heard this story. Cryptocurrency swindler Sam Bankman-Fried has been found guilty on all counts of federal fraud and could face 110 years of imprisonment. Of course, since it's crypto, that could be 470 years. No, two years. 12,000 years. A month. That's the end of that joke. And finally. It does fluctuate. It does fluctuate. I don't know if you've noticed this. Finally, Yamaha. Yamaha <laughs> has unveiled their new e-bike, and the big surprise is that it has no handlebars. Hmm. This is all part of the company's plan to have riders flip over the nothing and die. Okay. <laughs> Johnny Two. That's funny. That's a very funny joke. Well, <clears throat> an author has come out as a trans man after his partner came out as a trans woman. Oh. Yeah. And he's uh, writing a Christmas movie about it called The Gift of the Mad Genitals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My area. A new poll released by the New York Times shows Joe Biden trailing Donald Trump in five key swing states. Uh, yeah, experts say Biden is falling fast. He's also not doing well in the polls. It's <laughs> a goldie. There we go. Checking a box. Well, <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, speaking of, Donald Trump admitted in his fraud trial that he was ultimately unaware of numbers, but tended to rate the value of things maybe higher than they actually are. Mm. Yeah. Uh, tough way for Melania to find out she's actually a seven. <laughs> uh, politics will go right back in. Uh, new House Speaker Mike Johnson and his adopted son shared an app on their phones so they could monitor one another's porn consumption. What? Yeah, and apparently it worked, and they gave each other a lot of great ideas. Oh, God. <laughs> And finally, a Virginia candidate for state office who was revealed to have an OnlyFans porn account vows to stay in the race in spite of massive criticism and opposition. Well, supporters and opponents alike agree on one thing. She's proven she can take it on the chin. What a slog this week. <laughs> All right. Well, we are very lucky to have a good friend of mine today, someone Yay. who I worked with on the Cleveland show, sort of legendary. Um, <laughs> and he went on to run Blackish for years, which was 
some say the last TV show to work. Uh, <laughs> and he's here today, Courtney Lilly. So Yay. thanks for joining us. As we were talking before, you started talking about playing football yeah. at Columbia. Columbia. And yeah. so you're by far already, in terms of athletic credibility, the highest rated guest on this podcast. <laughs> yes. Kilborn. It, oh, it, yeah. Kilborn's, but you played yeah, college no, I, football. But I so. played basketball against Kilborn once. You brought him to our game. I know, yes. like he he played with an ease and a finesse. I was good <laughs> enough at high school football to go to the worst place to play college football. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Like and that's Ivy that's the yeah. and it's like Columbia. Like the time you know Golding went there too. The, the time we were there, it was like notoriously bad. They had well, lost they had lost games. They had lost, I believe, 59 straight. Wow. But it was that, 44, I believe, but 44 within four and a half, like, consecutive. That and that was the record. Right before we got there, though, right? Right before we got there. But then they didn't, like, start winning. And they haven't won in the 30 right. years it's been since, What, you what know, position whatever. did you play? I played defensive back. I was a corner. Oh, yeah, I was a corner. DB. So and were you, in high well, school, you must have been like pretty good. I, no, I was okay. Okay. I was okay. Like I got away. I got lucky. You know, um, I, I played quarterback, but uh, I was, that was, that was fun. Everybody else is running and hitting. You're throwing the ball over the goalpost. It's great. <laughs> right. And also like over. now they have all these quarterback camps and you're like doing it full, seven and seven all the time, full time job. It was literally like a few months of standing outside, throwing balls in the grass and like <laughs> avoiding getting hit. It was great. Um, but Played enough, and then you know we had one game because I also played two ways because everybody did at that point. Um, yeah. We played this team from New Jersey that had a great wide receiver, and I had this defensive back coach who went to Westchester University, which was like the local you know Pennsylvania State School in the area, and he was good enough, and that was like a Division two school, and he was good enough to like get a get a run with the the Browns, I think, and he was getting like crossed up by like Webster slaughter and all this kind of stuff. But for us, you're, yeah, you're, if you're a high school defensive back coach is like, that's, you know, and again, yeah. this was literally 30 years ago. Yeah. There's no spread formations. Nobody's throwing the ball, right. but we play this New Jersey team that threw the ball and they had a receiver who was really good. And they decided they're going to play him like bump and run man to man the whole game. And they gave me that assignment. Uh, it was like out of a movie because the coach had a dip, you know, in yeah. his lip, <laughs> and he's basically spitting and cursing. He's like, "God damn it, Lily, we're gonna put you out on this guy. We're gonna get our asses kicked," yeah. you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he didn't catch a pass. So, oh, like, yes. And, and was that like Mark Duper or someone? Or oh no, <laughs> don't even remember the guy's back. name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't, don't. I'm trying. I was trying to think of a name from that era. And I'm not sure. I, I don't like. I don't remember anything about it. But like, literally when Columbia started recruiting me, that was the story in a way that like they were looking at, and this was like printed in one of the Columbia guides that like, you know, they looked for one receiver, but they couldn't take their eyes off the defensive back. Wow. And that was like genuinely probably the only good game I had. So like <laughs> that was enough to set their expectations for something that I never delivered on. And you, so you're you're also for the audience. You're a, a twin, and was, I forget was your brother at Columbia as yeah, yeah. well? He, yeah, yeah, he was, and he was on the team as well. Right? He was too. I mean, like honestly, Columbia football. Everybody quits after freshman year. Like, <laughs> and like I knew I was going to quit. I had the feeling. I was like, this is probably it. And when we're all breaking down the huddle at the end of the last game, because I played JV first year, um, and so. We're all breaking down the huddle at the end of the last game. And the guy who's breaking down the huddles is like, all right, guys, let's get ready. That was a great season. Uh, all right, nobody quit on three. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> that seems significant. <laughs> that feels like. Now, did the, JV, did the JV squad rack up some victories? 
We had a couple, but also like we had, so Columbia decided it didn't want to be bad at sports for like a brief window. This was also fortune in my favor for a brief window around when they recruited me. So uh, Marcellus Wiley, who played in the NFL, was like was recruited from California the year yeah. before I got there. Uh, we had a guy, Roy Wilfork, who was part of my class, who had tryouts with the Jets. And we had like, look, the Ivy League. Marcellus is the greatest athlete besides Lou Gehrig in Columbia history, right? Am I like, am I right about that? I mean, probably. I mean, like he had, I mean, he's still on TV. He had so much success. Yeah. As a football player. Well, I was going to say, let's go back a little bit because, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's I know then you you went on the newspaper at Columbia yeah. and, and that was sort of your big like college activity. And I wish I had done that. But uh, did you growing up like did you even know what a TV writer was? Is that something you aspired to or like were you yeah. going to be a hard hitting Philly journalist or what was your agenda? I, like, what were you thinking about? I got like I had no idea. Like, I guess you knew that there were TV writers, but like, I didn't. There were no famous, there were no showrunners. Like, nobody knew right. who anybody was. Yeah. The only name I remember was Reinhold Ouija from Night Court because it was a weird name. <laughs> and I, and Amazing. I, that, that was about at the end of the credits. And I think he was like a, a executive producer, but like, you know, Gary David Goldberg and like Family Ties, is it just no connection to any of it? And it's like, I grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So like it was, you know, we were nowhere. We, the closest we had to TV was like QVC. So like yeah. nothing was around it. Um, <laughs> Some great writers over there. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, like, was it a big family activity TV or or not oh. really in your house? Because I no, know your we dad is, a, is like a, and this is, here's my Jew coming out. He's like a reverend or a deacon or a priest minister, or a pope yeah. or he's one of these. <laughs> a minister. He's yeah. one of these. But he was minister. also like a, human resource manager like we just raised by tv like almost everybody else in the 70s and 80s you know and so like totally we watched it religiously it just didn't seem like a thing so i had no plan i my plan was like i knew i enjoyed writing i had no other skills um i worked at the newspaper my brother was the sports editor so i kind of had an easy gig into getting some of the better jobs and we spent like honestly we spent so much of our time at columbia going to the games on the weekends once we quit, you know, we'd rent a car and, and go up to the Columbia Cornell basketball game or whatever, and we'd cover it. And yeah. I was working more at the radio station. Because you were two years, you're 97, right? Class yeah, of 97. 97. I'm class of 95, so we were probably at all those basketball games, like, inches 100%. apart from each other with no, because I was... 100%. Oh, so you guys didn't know each other in in Columbia? No. 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 I I knew six people. Yeah. (laughs) And I think that's Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way it works. And honestly, I think it was like probably six months into working together that I even sat there and go like, oh, wait, you went to Columbia? Oh, yeah. Because it just doesn't. (laughs) It doesn't care. There's no <laughs> communal pride in Columbia with Colum- at least then. Now I think it's it's all changed and it's different. But it's like the whole thing was about going to New York City to survive, at least for me, and then like adopting this apathy and this independence, and then just not having any money. So being in the middle of New York City and never leaving your room because you couldn't afford to. <laughs> that Sounds great. That's the experience. Yeah. yeah. Yes. So fifteen hundred of those happy kids. You know, right. So what were you place. doing on the 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 newspaper? Is a really good newspaper at Columbia. I I felt. Yeah. Like, so what but, were you what were you doing? Like were you doing sports or were you doing sports. everything? Yeah. I was doing sports, like covering the basketball team, the football team, whatever. Like football was my senior year. You know, I like I, I had the, the football beat, you know, yeah. which was cool. I mean, were you, you know? thinking like, oh, I'll do this and then maybe 
you know, be a well, columnist or like, how are you working? Were you working like Boris Piskin as a source? That's a deep cut. Oh, <laughs> I like that. Great that's name. for the great Columbia. Name. That's for that. Like Jim Tuberty was more my guy. I would oh, go Jim in there. Tuberty. <laughs> Big. What, what names? Yeah, just, Amazing. An names. exclusive <laughs> with Ty Buckaloo. Oh, you guys are going way deep <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, in the weeds. Steve, yeah. the just, gazelle Marusic. Oh, uh, yeah. Jesus. The, the minutiae of Columbia basketball. Well, but Cor- Courtney, just, did you ever find yourself that scene? Senior year, just like sitting in the cold rain at out at Dartmouth when your team is losing like thirty eight to three, and you're like, "What the fuck am I doing? What am I going to write?" Oh my god! Yeah, what's you the angle? Have, it's almost like you were there. It's <laughs> like we did our senior year, the football team, because we did decide we're going to like butts with the academic standards to get a better team. The senior year, even though we had all quit, a lot of the players that they brought in. We still started off like seven and zero, and we were like on our way to winning Whoa. a championship. And I was covering it for the paper. We went up to Dartmouth, cold rainy day, oh and we lost forty to nothing. Wow! <laughs> like it was, it was, it was like just a humiliation that was like uh, like every hope that you'd ever had kind of just just disappeared. And now, um, were, were you hilarious. able to were you able to keep out of the out of a column like that? Because and listen, I don't mean to offend any of our listeners who went to Dartmouth, but they're notorious assholes. Like they're, they're it was it, like that's, yeah, the worst. that's yeah. that school yeah. is like you know it's like sort of the jock lacrosse Ivy League school, and they're all it's also assholes. the Republican one, really. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only joy we had is like you know you go to these places, and it's just, again it's a different time, and we'd roll in there with like seven eight people, whatever the kind of thing, either at the newspaper, and we'd usually find a party, and we usually try to steal stuff. That was kind of like the extent. So like, again, Columbia wasn't going to win football games, but we were going to go to your house. People were like, who are those guys? And every school is bigger than Columbia. They were like, who's going to let a bunch of New York people up in your house? It was insane to us that like, like, and it was like just dumb shit you would steal, you know? And it's funny you mentioned this because my move move in college, I can now admit was, I would go to fraternity parties and when, if they had a pool table, I would steal the cue ball. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Goldie, I can't make the joke. I can't make the joke. The irony. The irony. <laughs> but I had a drawer of cue balls uh, in, uh, in college because I was like, fuck these guys. <laughs> I love that. I want to cause them what some a hassle. inconvenience. No, that's a huge hassle for a frat. Yeah, <laughs> they have to buy a yeah. whole new set. You can't just uh, buy an individual oh, cue ball. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so we both we both kind of shared this experience, which you know I I think is kind of uncommon in show business. And people picture like you go to an Ivy League school and then you're able to parlay those connections into writing. But Columbia is not that way at all. And in fact, I th- I no. felt Columbia there was nothing vocational about it unless you were pre med or maybe wanted 100%. to work at Goldman Sachs or something. 100%. But that's so, why I did the newspaper and stuff, because I was like, I got to figure something out. I, I had to get a job after yeah. college. So what happened? Know? So you graduate and what happened? I get a job. I get very, very lucky again. And I get a job at the Providence Journal uh, oh, being cool. a, yeah, it was great. It was like, it was a year. I was a, um, a, like a term reporter there, general assignment. Wow. I worked in South County, which is a region of Rhode Island, right on the Connecticut border, covered two towns that like probably between them had 8,000 people. But like, I'm writing copy every day, like a real report, even though I didn't know what I was doing. And I really felt bad for the, it's what I'm realizing now. We had this editor, Jerry Goldstein, who 
part of the reason, and they had this great program. It was great for me. They had this program they brought in, which is also probably to undercut the union, where they had like 18 um, young reporters that they brought into the bureaus of Rhode Island. And at that point, you know, the Providence Journal um, had bureaus all over Rhode Island and Massachusetts. And they'd be, you know, and basically you have two or three of these young reporters who would come in there and do a lot of the, the legwork, you know? And um, it was great for us for experience. It must have been hell for the editors because you're reteaching right. every two or three years this, like, and again, it's not, and like, we're all coming in there trying to act like we're Woodward and Bernstein and trying to figure out, like, <laughs> I don't want to be here. And they, and like, you know, this was a place, these are, these editors live there. There are other reporters live there. Um, it was a great experience of the job. I knew three days into it, I didn't want to be a reporter. I knew how uh-huh. Yeah, you were you know? like, we're all coming back next year, and then you're like, I'm <laughs> nobody exactly. quit. Nobody quit. <laughs> oh my god, like, nobody quit. Was, I was really. Good I mean, play. so I, you know, I know that area is notoriously heavily mobbed up, and if you're an investigative reporter there, was that a part of it, or like, what were you sort of reporting? For some about? people, I was covering like town council meetings. Um, wow. I was covering um, uh, like traffic accidents. Um, yeah. That was kind of the thing. It's like people's worst days were days that you realized you had more to write. And that right. was kind of hard. Uh, yeah. That was yeah. not my MO. Um, like, I remember there was a there's a breaking point for me. And this is the dumbest breaking point. But like, I, I'd done, you know, whatever. It's just a PR puff piece about how this company was giving a, a school computers, right? And it's Christmas time. And I think I wrote some really dumb lead along the lines I, i'm gonna say i think i wrote this dumb lead even though it's been almost 25 years and this is exactly probably <laughs> yeah you clearly right. yeah, yeah, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> but uh you know something about how like you know that the holiday spirit like this company shows that the holiday spirit can outlast even the most stubborn fruitcake right it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lead right it's a lead um i i don't talk to the editors i see it in the paper the next day um, and it was changed to shows that this company, uh, the holiday spirit can outlast even the most long lasting fruitcake. And the editors changed stubborn to long lasting. And I was like, well, I said outlast long lasting. And I was yeah. just like, I quit. What are we doing? This is insane. <laughs> it was just like the most tiny, minute. Yeah. And I was just yeah. like, wait, are we, we're not going to. We're not going to look at that. We're not going to, and like stubborn, what are we doing? The readers of Rhode Island can't understand. Fruitcakes, we know one thing about it. Nobody's ever eaten a fruitcake. Do we just know they stick around? Can, it's continue, like a clam. Continued on page C11. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm slipping viciously over uh, to find that. So oh, wait, what, just... what was the plan though? So you're like 23 and then but, you're in well, I didn't, Rhode I mean, Island, like, I... which is a nightmare. To be 23 well, I, in Rhode Island. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't really have a point. Like, I got a job. And I had that job in February yeah. of my senior year. So, like, to me, I'm like, I'm doing as much of the plan. Then you no, get that's on board the plan. Yeah. 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 And you're like, this isn't this isn't going great. Um, but then I had to kind of figure out the plan. And by then, I had a friend. Like, college was, was cool in my, like, you know, you find your group. We were mostly sports dudes. That was kind of mostly it. Um, but I always loved comedy. I didn't have the courage to ever do stand up uh, because that is hard, as you guys know. Um, yeah, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I didn't, you know, I didn't do any performance stuff at all. I was never. Well, I just didn't know. To any fill of that in way. some context, like it, the only comedy I remember at Columbia was there was the Jester, which was kind of like a really bad cracked magazine style. Yeah. And then 
there were more a cappella groups than students. And <laughs> each one of them Insane. in between songs. And there's a group, the fucking Kingsmen, who I fucking hate. Who's like, it's like the Kingsmen are the pinnacle of like a Columbia man. And they like sing like doo-wop. And then they perform like little sketches that are just SNL ripoffs. That was all that was available there, unless I'm missing something at that time. But you're also like speaking to the like the weird thing about going to Columbia, which like I didn't really know. And they didn't really tell us you didn't really think about like the undergrad columbia college was all guys until like 84 you know and so like that's part of the reason we never had this like kind of sense of spirit because like first of all new york as a city transformed so much in the 50s 60s 70s 80s so everybody went to a different school and then you had it in 1984 all of a sudden like women are allowed and and and, like being having a, a, a college experience at columbia that like the guys before hadn't had it was like it was just a weird place and so like that's where you had these like vestigial things like the Kingsman. Like I love the way you said right. that's a I'm like, every they would always talk about things, the statues, the this in a way that made no sense for the 90s world that we were living in. It was yeah. like being in an anachronist, you know? Yeah, I I always say yeah. that like the education prepares you to be like a, a total asshole investment banker. And then when you've, you know, done a leverage buyout and destroyed a company and you're celebrating in the Hamptons, you're able to quote Aristophanes in your toast. Oh, wow. <laughs> and people are like, oh, he's a man of letters. Yeah, like that, exactly. that to me is what the education was. 100%. Where, they, where, you're, where just, you sit in your leather recliner and muse about, you know, Thucydides as you, as you don't even think about the ethical implications <laughs> of, of what like, you just did. You know, you dropped bombs on Cambodia or something. Like you just go like, hmm, Silent life is deep. Hilarious. Good, uh, pull, good pull on Thucydides, Goldie. <laughs> well, they, he, there's, a, there's a core curriculum that Courtney and I have both read that, you know, so we have shared yeah. reference points. But so what do, you, what do you do after you leave the paper? So what's, what's next? I moved back to New York. And uh, my buddy who started doing stand-up in Boston right around then, who... Uh, I just was really impressed with his courage to do it. And he was a fun, and he was funny. And we were, we enjoyed, he was a reporter too, being funny together. And I was just like, I can't do this. I'm never, I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do this. But I thought about like sketch and, um, and writing, you know, sitcom writing and got back to New York. And at first I was like, I'm going to be a novelist. That's the kind of thing I, I'm Me like too. in New York, <laughs> you're in your twenties. And they're like, and it's such, and you had friends who were trying to do that. And you're going to, parties with people who are in publishing and all that kind of stuff. And you realize, like, for me, I just, I'm not that guy. Like, there was no version of me that was ever going to, like, the Did girls were going to be into me. Did I start a novel? I started yeah. several. They were probably all pretty bad, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. I, well, like, you're, like, you, you know, you start, what I remember is in trying to start one is you're like, Derek Jacobson had a problem, you know, and you're just like, I already hate it. I, it, I, I hate it. It's already one of the worst things ever written, you know, no, or no. like the I'm way she kidding. looked at him, Kyle knew right then. And you're like, hate it, hate it. Or then you're like, I got to describe a tree yeah. beneath the bow of the elm. And you're like, what the, f- who am I? No, no. See, that's, that's you as a black writer in the nineties. I would have been like, Walking up the Harlem streets. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, do I trust him? 
You know, it's like Apex, <laughs> get your hand out my pocket. There's like a slang you gotta play yeah. in Like yeah. none of that was ever going to work. He still so, somehow like, he still somehow felt out of place. Like this was not yes. truly his home. Yeah. <laughs> I took I took a class with this guy, Kenneth Koch, who was a well known New York poet. And uh one of the first and like shocking things he said, and I think like you you couldn't say today if you were a professor, but he, he just said, like, I want, you know, he assigned us to write a poem and he goes, and I don't want any poems about the homeless guy at the gate. Because he must have, like, every year read, like, five poems about, like, that were basically the song Mr. Wendell. That it was like, he might not look like much to you. But, and, he, and, he just, and he went on for 20 minutes about, like, this fucking guy. And he, which felt like a very time-specific thing. So... The, you're not writing a novel, so what what are you doing? No. Are you doing a spec script? Are you like working on mine? I'm figuring it out. I remember there was like it's funny, and I'm sure you guys have your stories where you start to go, huh? All right, there's something there that makes you want to express it more. I remember, and I started writing down ideas for sketches, and the Chris mm. Rock show was on at that point, you know, and I and I and Chris Rock was like comic idol, like yeah, and like he was just the the height of his powers at that time, and like. Mm-hmm such an insightful writer and comic and strong voice and all that stuff. And so I, I watched that show religiously. And I remember I had a sketch idea that I'd written down and it was just, and again, this is total nineties hacky sketch idea, but I think it was like, you know, uh, for a patch, like a nicotine patch to stop you from masturbating. So like, uh. and they, they did a version of it with like gum or something like that. And I'm like, and to me, I'm like, Oh, your idea, but you pitch that. Now, again, before you know everything's execution, you know, you're sitting there and you're like, that was an idea that could have got on to Chris Rock. Right. And you're yeah. like, right. all right, maybe all my ideas aren't garbage, you know? Oh, cool. And like, yeah. obviously that's like, and again, it all, usually it happens in the form of like, you know, somebody you're like, wait, this guy's a TV writer. I can do that. You know? And I just didn't have any of that. So right. it, it took an idea, you know? That's wait, you are know. you saying, are you saying, so you had this idea and then you saw a very similar thing on the Chris Rock show. Now, yeah. were you, because I had an experience that was, was like that too, when I was doing stand up, and I used to tell a joke and then uh, a few months later, I, I saw it the almost the exact same joke on friends. And I oh, wow. feel like I had the audacity in that moment to think like they fucker, they stole that from me. <laughs> like anyone was coming into the comedy clubs where Goldie and I were performing and like, Oh, I've got to get this out to Hollywood stat. Did you feel that way? No, because it was just like literally these okay, were scraps smart. of paper in a in a in a bag. But you were also out in the world publicly performing. It, it and wasn't like, really a world. Trust me, Colby <laughs> will tell you. Yeah. Uh, but it gave me the courage to kind of start talking about it. And then, um, as I talked about, I had a friend who read about a writing fellowship that Nickelodeon did and still does. And so I wrote a spec. You know, I wrote a Simpson spec in a week because I knew the show, um, and awesome. I got extraordinarily lucky because uh, it was the first year of the program and I don't think a ton, a ton of people applied for it. And Amazing. they gave, it was great. They gave out four fellowships at the time. I had just That's been laid awesome. off from my job and I got one. That's so. awesome. So, so cool. you write a Simpsons spec and they'd bring you to Nickelodeon and they're like, this is great. Okay, now dump green slime on people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you try to keep finding ways to do that. I, got, I mean, were I, your parents like, into it or were they at that point like, what Always are you supported. doing? Yeah, that's always great. supportive. It was like I got lucky. Like there was no, 
like, you know, my dad was a human resource manager. My mother worked in like child protective services. They both had education degrees and stuff like that. You know, and it was just kind of like, look, man, may, once I got to kind of Columbia, they were like, we've done our job. You know, yeah, like, yeah, if, yeah. if you mess up now, then it's kind of on you. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so you, you know, you're at this Nickelodeon thing. And then, you know, I, it, I know, was your first job that, that like was the real job arrested development or were there a few yeah. things before that? Wow. Yeah. That was the first real job. <laughs> what a great Switch. first job. Yeah. yeah. So you walked in, I mean, and notoriously that job was like 20 hours a day. You're at Mitch Hurwitz's house on the weekend. They're, I, they're changing things like on the stage. I mean, what was, so what was your experience going from like a fellowship and what season did you start being, thrown in or do you think that like being in a newspaper environment where things are rapidly changing you had some adaptive ability i mean like the amount of naivete i had about the entire business because the fellowship okay. didn't train me or prepare me at all no you know, i ended up being can't. in this cartoon that was never a, really a writer's room all this stuff. i did some freelances and then you're in a network you know i was on the first two seasons as a staff writer um i also got in late like they brought me on through diversity program and i started in august and i think the team had started everybody else and it was a small staff by mm. Mm, probably in may whenever june wow. and so we already had like a couple episodes i remember reading the pilot when i was proctoring the sats and being like this is a really good pilot i mean like yeah. you oh, know yeah. and then um getting the job and uh not knowing anything i didn't know what a scene blow was i didn't know what a button was i didn't know all any of the lingo i'm drowning every day every day i also like it was a rare moment uh at least for me luckily because i always kind of like you know pick the path of least resistance where i was so demonstrably the worst at something it's like you know it was it was I, I just wasn't funny. I wasn't like useful. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was incredibly hard. It was incredibly yeah. hard to start off. I mean, you know? yeah. Cause sometimes, you know, I, I was lucky and I think Alec was too. And that when you start out in late night, you're sent to your office by yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to do the performative aspect and you don't, you're not right. being a value. Like you're allowed to sort of hone your skill you're allowed to, Alex says, masturbate before you have sex. I don't like that <laughs> phrasing. I think that's that all the time. way to put it. But um, yeah, it must be to be thrown into that, particularly like given how crazy that show was. So, I mean, were you just sitting there silent or were you trying to pitch and then just sort of getting angry at yourself after and going like, stupid, stupid. Yeah. I think it's a, like, look, I don't think I talked a lot. I barely yeah. had an opportunity. And like, it, it's also like, you know, the speed to which the rooms run like you want to run it's like playing basketball you like want to catch up with these guys but they they're already past you you know what yeah. i'm saying and like i was so slow thinking my thoughts you know like yeah. getting up tracking the story on where they're going you know when you're in like a which really you can on room. that show anyway i mean oh it's the worst like, place to do that but it was i mean like look we we did you know for the most part every everything in the room so the ability oh, wow. to break things often without a board and just kind of like allowing the kind of machine to happen, it was high level stuff. And it was like going to grad school for me. I did like, there's no version. I'm lucky to have gotten a paycheck and a credit off of that. Like yeah. I got incredibly lucky because I think really what helped me when I say help me, this is the story I'm going to tell myself <laughs> is that like, I got an opportunity in the first 13, probably because I was a staff writer and they don't get paid script for it. And, you know, and Fox 
hated the show. Everything that people talk about, like hating the show, apparently was true. Like it does, you know, it doesn't make sense in a way. It's like, why would executives hate their own show? Like you just don't have to say anything. <laughs> yeah. You can secretly hate a show, but apparently they really hated the show. Wow. Still hate the show. I've heard stories about executives talking 20 years, it's been like 20 years ago, being just like, God, I hated that show. You know, it was and the so, big show at the time that they liked though, because that's always I mean, Friends was still on. Friends oh, right. was just I printing see, yeah. money, and you're doing these yeah. things. Um, but like I got to write in the first, you know, 13, I got to write a draft and like it did not look, not a word of it made on to air. I'm a hundred percent sure, but I got an opportunity, I think to, to, to kind of like demonstrate that I'm not completely useless, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. so yeah, so I, you know, two years there. Um, and most of the time I'm just, I, I'm just trying to understand oh but all the stuff that everybody talks about like long hours this man i got free lunch and coffee and you're like yeah 20s like there was never a sense of being just like this is bullshit like there was never a sense you're like can you believe this yeah Yeah, that feels like a post-marriage kids thing for me like i never cared about hours until i was married right yeah like whatever i got nowhere to be so i i met you on the cleveland show was there yeah did you is that did you go from arrested to that or there was a couple no i went to arrested to everybody hates chris which didn't work with chris rock and it was like literally it was you know you're sitting here and like the story i told here's this dream opportunity um and it was hilarious because it's like toward the final days of upn and they were making a real push for this show and i remember being at a wedding in like the south bay somewhere and this is again this is like like 2005 and and the advertising for that, it was just everywhere in a way, you know, it was everywhere. And literally at one point on a wedding, I'm on a boat and they're asking me like, oh, what's next? You were just on a restaurant. What are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm working on this show. Everybody hates Chris. And like a Simpsons <laughs> joke, there was a plane flying a banner. With Everybody hates Chris. Like going oh my behind. God. It was just everywhere. They just like just pumped it and said, we're going to make this a huge hit, like Malcolm in the Middle or whatever, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I, I, I did not get picked up for the back nine on that so like i went from arrested two years of that and then then right to and chris rock was the most famous person i'd ever been around at that point i remember we at some point he came in and we walked to like like a restaurant like we're a fast food place right by the paramount lot where we were shooting and he's so approachable to people that people kept stopping him like and being like hey chris can you buy my meal hey chris we talk to my girlfriend hey chris (laughs) Uh. we sign my shirt and like that's just him walking a quarter of a mile so there's already kind of this like distance to things and, you know, he talks about it. He's like, you know, you do comedy with friends. And he walked into a writer's room, you know, and saw a bunch of people he didn't know. And it was like, yeah. that's, again, this is as the story has been told. Who knows? Maybe I was dog shit. But, like, it was also kind of like, you know, it's, so it's, change it's funny hearing these stories because by the time I met you on on the Cleveland show, like, my memory of meeting you is I think you came in season two, right? Like, you were yeah. out there season yeah. one. So, like, you came in, and you were wearing, like, a really nice sweater. I think you were wearing a cardigan. And you hung, like, a really nice painting behind your desk, uh, or a piece of art, or uh, of Mike Tyson. Oh, yeah, 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 uh, yeah, yeah. Holyfield. The, the, the Holyfield oh, And yeah. I was like, this guy's really professional. And I was like, you can <laughs> hang art in your office? And it was like, so funny. <laughs> he seems to really know what he's doing. But by then, like, you know, you were always, I thought, you know, in, in terms of that room, like the best at pitching stories and coming in with stuff that was like really unique. So what was the transformation that happened in between? Like, was it just getting your sea legs? Sea legs and also just, lo- I mean, like, 
after Everybody Hates Chris, I went to a show on TBS My Boys that Betsy Thomas ran. And yeah. Jim Gaffigan. That was, yeah, nice. Gaffigan. That was awesome. Because that was like, look, I'm good at learning on the fly. And like the sink or swim yeah, of Arrested yeah. Development learned a lot, met some good people. Everybody Hates Chris, you're there, you're picking things up. You get some of the like, you know, life kicks you in the dick things that you need to go through in Hollywood kind of stuff. Uh, but at at my boys was an environment to kind of be like, okay, I'm performing the job and I can actually figure out how I do it, you know, because the show stuck around, Betsy was supportive, um, and I got to see more elements of how television worked and, you know, and so like I got to see what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. So it just gave me a nice calm place to to, you know, and we did, and I did 40 episodes there, three years. So like, it was, it was a place to sit there and go like, okay, maybe a career here is viable because before that everything was like, they're going to kick me out of Hollywood at any moment. I'm I'm just, I'm just dead. You know, it was just, it felt like it was all doom and gloom. So is the, is the Mike Tyson art, do you think subconsciously like, I'm here to fight. <laughs> right. Like, do you think there's like some oh. subconscious message or was it like a conscious message of just like, don't fuck with me? Or was it like, <laughs> no, like just... it was really cool. I mean, it really stuck out to me because it was like this really artful rendering of him and Holyfield. Yeah. I, I really him remember it. Field, it was this great. I used, I mean, I'm like, obviously we still have the internet, but I miss the old internet where like weird shit would happen. And there was this <laughs> boxing fighting blog called Nomas where they just kind of like would write these like kind of esoteric pieces about the fight game and stuff like that. And they would do these things. And one of the, and that piece of art, and it's like, it's drawn, it's illustrated and it's the chaos in the ring. And it's kind of this cartoon picture. You're seeing Mills Lane, you're seeing Holyfield hold his ear and like Tyson at the center of it. And it's just like this kind of almost like graphic novel still of what was going on. And again, being somebody, a child of the eighties, Mike Tyson was like, like people don't understand how big a deal Mike Tyson was. Yes. <laughs> you know, Huge. like, yeah. yeah. And like the story I tell, we moved, you know, uh, houses one point. We moved houses on the the day that Mike Tyson fought Spix, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, we're in Philadelphia, you get the flip TV, it's the fights in Vegas or wherever. So it's not on till 11 o'clock. There's no paper, you're not seeing the fight. There's no chance on it. But I wanted to know everything that was going on. And Channel 2 in Philadelphia was a CBS channel. Uh, I think at the time. And so you're on the dial and at two, you're watching sports report and they're just like, the Tyson Spakes is getting ready to, you know, like, you know, start in Vegas. And then you flip the dial to 10 the sports report and they're like, it's over. Tyson <laughs> yeah. Spakes. That was the Sick. encapsulation of his dominance to me. Yeah. You know, and like, I remember the first trip we ever made to New York. We go to we go to the Apollo, and it's you know Wednesday night. It's amateur night, and the place is packed. It's like a Spike Lee movie. It's so absurd. And at some point, the MC gets up and he's like, "Ladies and gentlemen, the champ is in the house," and the place goes nuts because it's Whoa. Tyson. He's there, and you're like, wow. "If you had been able to stand up, would you have gotten a laugh like right then?" <laughs> the yeah, just yeah, we were way back. That's the, the that's the look. Yeah, but it was like. He was so dominant and powerful, losing to Buster Douglas in Japan. I hated I that. I was, so, I was so angry about that. Because also it was didn't make the whole, sense. The, well, there was, first of all, there was the famous long count where Douglas was down for like 15 seconds. Yep. And they let yep. him stay in the fight. And I think, uh, listen, I, I think this crossed like a racial divide where it's just like, you love perfection and dominance. And Tyson yeah. was was that. And so, so. The, the, we got to watch him sadly kind of fall off 
uh, yep. after that, which sucked. But there was a, a six year window there in the 80s where there was nothing better. And people always say like, oh, prime Ali versus Tyson. I'm like, prime Tyson. Prime, no, nobody. Hey, anyone. Yeah. Nobody could have yeah. beaten prime Tyson. He was he he scared people like yes. people lost the fight as soon as they got in the ring. Yeah. And that's yeah. to me the thing of sport. You know, and I know you're Alex, the Patriots man, man. Oh, yeah. Those Patriot teams of the 2000s, like people knew they couldn't win. And like athletes are so tuned in to succeeding that when it's Tiger Woods, that's why Tiger Woods to me is like Tiger Woods had to beat the entire field all the time. And grown men who get paid to golf (laughs) were basically saying no mas, conceding (laughs) the entire match. We'll never see that again. You know, it was amazing. And like, that's what Tyson was, you know? The first my the first time I ever saw him, so I, it was the night he won the heavyweight title, which was it Trevor Burbick? Trevor Burbick. Trevor Burbick. Trevor Burbick. Yeah. So yeah. I was at a sleepover with like 10 kids and the parents had bought the fight and he knocked Trevor Burbick out of the ring, basically. <clears throat> yeah. And whatever happened, our reaction was. We just started beating the shit out of each other and screaming. Bad boys. Yeah. It was just all ten of us yeah. were just like fucking yeah. throwing haymakers and jumping on each other and pounding each other and screaming. So that was to me like the effect, the Mike Tyson effect, was that like these suburban kids were just like, "Holy fucking oh, yeah. shit!" Fuck. <laughs> I, I, I had a different sleepover experience right in that era. I remember it was a friend's birthday party in Newton. And this was like 1985 or six. And there were like eight or nine of us there. And everybody was fired up because we were going to stay up and watch this horror movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, we start the movie. Halfway through the movie, I'm the only one awake. (laughs) And and I sit through to the terrifying ending it's so one scary. of the scariest endings you know and i'm i'm pissed i didn't mention I, it the I other week. terrifying ending to that movie and nobody's awake <laughs> so like i spent the rest of the night like contemplating if i could knock on my friend's parents door <laughs> oh to tell God. them how scared i was <laughs> I didn't do it. I'm proud to say <laughs> I, I, t- I toughed it out. I'll say as someone with kids, uh, you know, and they have frequent sleepovers, when the kid's sleeping over comes into our room and you're like, get the fuck out of here. Deal with it. Just yeah. deal with it. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. know you. I don't know your parents. You're my kid's friend. Get the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. Um, so we got we to gotta spend a lot of time, uh, the rest of our time here on on talking about blackish because it's, yeah. it's sort of like an extraordinary achievement and you shepherded it the last what was it four or five seasons or three seasons more than that? three three, three okay. full seasons yeah but i was there pretty much the whole time so yeah so you, so when you walk in the room where you, i mean it must have been like finally a show where was there a sense of like i can take my life and put it into this show in a way that i haven't before or was it more like Kenya was dictating everything and it's like, we're here to put his life into the show or like. It was interesting. Like, look, we had, we had a great staff. We had a really great staff. And like, that was another show I joined late. I joined it. They already had a few episodes. Um, And you know, on that, when you start on a show, you're in this cocoon where everybody is like, just shit scared that it's going to fail, you know? Mm -hmm. And you can't start 
talking about all the ways it's not going to fail. You're doing it. And it's just constant rationalizing and trying to make sure that everything's okay. I came in and I was on the outside and I came in on probably like a week or two before it debuted. And I'd seen the episodes and I knew that people were talking about it positively. And I was like, oh yeah, you guys are going to be fine. So I got to be like a nice, like yeah. cool breeze kind of yeah. coming in there. And that was yeah. nice. Um, I also got to settle in there and go like, oh, this feels like it could stick around for a while. You know, I could see yeah. the support that they had and what was going on. Um, but for me, like, like voice wise, like I always, you know, this maybe this is like the failed novelist part of me is like, I can always find a way into any show. I got, it was cool that some jokes, like there are always jokes, like I'm sure we all have them in our pilots that we write and stuff like that. There's a joke that I try to get into every show or pilot, um, which is just like all they're just reference jokes, which are like not the highest form of comedy. But like one is like, I always try to get, I mean, <laughs> I mean they, they do have limits sometimes. He you says know? from and his so, like, mansion. <laughs> his second mansion. I saw a commercial uh, in the 80s. Now I live here. Yeah. <laughs> so kiss a little longer. Uh, man's yeah. genius. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but like those ones where I always talk about, there's like, one I'm always trying to get in there, like, you know, like set, telling somebody that they're strutting around here, like they married Beyonce's mama. And that's to me <laughs> is like a joke. I could try that's to funny. get into blackish yeah. or, you know, like somebody whose life goal was to be the guy in Prince's band who didn't wear a shirt. Things like that, <laughs> which were hard probably to get into other shows I worked on. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not yeah. an Arrested Development right. joke. Um, yeah. So there was like a, a freedom into kind of like, off the rip kind of like just fun things yeah. um which was which was awesome which was awesome but like you know look man it's like i am a obviously you know look i think we're past it now we tried a few years ago to talk a lot about diversity for a few years um and like i think the conversation <laughs> moved in ways that weren't always helpful or prescriptive for younger writers because what we do people respond to because it there are universal aspects there's a ton of specificity but specificity doesn't need to just be you know that i grew up in suburban philadelphia or that like you know what i'm saying i think right. we got really limited in what we decided our identities were going to be as writers you know and i think well, look yeah. and it's not the especially younger writers it's not their fault this is what they're told to do managers were just like write your story and everybody's story in their 20s like we talked about is pretty terrible and not that interesting you know yeah. and so like <laughs> it became hard and so like for me it was like the the relief was in like honestly kenya ran a great room and it was really it was it was like being on a good you know football or basketball team everybody yeah. had roles well, cuz the stories seem valuable. like real stories as you go through them and even you know leading leading up to talking to you today i was going through some of it and i so i started watching the pandemic episode and like framing that as a horror movie and i was like that show seemed to you know it, it didn't ignore what was going on like a lot of shows <laughs> would just go like no one wants to hear about the pandemic it's yeah. depressing we need escapism yeah. we need we're just gonna pretend it's not yeah. happening but you guys like dove right in so you know i i, I admire that and you know, did did you feel that like you the stories were like, hey, there's a personal issue I'm dealing with. I'm going to put it in the show. Or was it more like, here's what everyone's talking about. How do we get our take on it? Or was it both? It was personal, mostly like and this is the thing I miss specifically about like network TV and making TV right now because I'm just doing dumb development bullshit. But like especially with the pandemic episodes you're talking about, like we we, you know, our rap party for the season, for whatever, season six, was the day that, like, we found out Tom and Rita Hanks had COVID, you know? And so, yeah. like, 
we were getting ready to go on hiatus and we're like, all right, well, like we don't have to show back up for another 90 days. This will blow over. And then, you know, but we started talking about the next season. We knew we were coming back. And then first, of course, everybody's like, yeah, we probably don't need to talk about this. We don't need to bring it up that much because you're going to sit there and say it was a thing of the past. Um, and then obviously it wasn't and it didn't. And we sat there and we're like, well, we're a world that we're a show that operates in the real world that happens. You know, Donald Trump was elected. Da, 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 da. We didn't ignore these things. And it was also so specific to what people were going through that we knew we couldn't do it, you know? And yeah. so like, then you get to the stuff that I thought was really fun about being on Blackish and especially having success and being such a long running show. Uh, I'm a big fan of music. I listen music constantly, thousands of vinyl records, all that kind of stuff. And I think of a songwriter like Jason Isbell, who I love, who doesn't just write about whatever he's feeling like it's not like super autobiographical in what he's doing but he'll tell stories like i'm writing a song about jealousy i'm writing a song about anger i'm writing a song about new love all those things and from when you have a show that's that um you know that we've been that successful we're doing 22 episodes we could kind of write about what we want to write about so like for us to sit there and go like and we had all like for that point the you know the actors the studio the network all trusted us to do so i could sit there i always talk about it it was the easiest, greatest situation to become a showrunner in because I just, I was, they knew me, they trusted me. My first year running the show, you know, there were, it was like the 400th anniversary of the start of like the, the slave trade to the Americas, right? And so um, I'm like, I want to go shoot an episode in Ghana. And they entertained that for a long period of time wow. until like God, we found out that like it just wasn't feasible. Ghana didn't have enough of a film industry. We wouldn't have been able to make it work. But like really chasing these things wow. down, looking at crews, getting involved in this kind of stuff. And we broke these stories and came up with these things. And like all the way through the end, we're just like, we want to get the Lakers and you can get the Lakers. You just tell stories. It was so freeing. And you had all the, the you know, because it was a family show that the dynamics didn't need to be set up that much because everybody kind of knows what they are. Um, it was just really freeing as a writing experience. So how know? did you, would you going into the season strategize, you know, you need to do 20 or 22, 24 episodes. Would you go, okay, I'm going to tell everyone come in with two stories and then I'll sort of get those on the board and, and kind of get an arc. Or would you come in saying like, well, there are these overarching kind of arcs or themes I want to deal with. Hey, go off, take this notion and 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 turn it into something. Like, how how are the stories generated on on that? I got lucky again because, like, the first season I ran it, there was talk about doing a spinoff between Lawrence Fishburne and Jennifer Lawrence characters, and Jennifer Lawrence, Jennifer Lewis's characters. Mm -hmm. And so the studio network came in, was like, "We're talking about doing a spinoff. It'd be great if we got Pops and Ruby together." So I was like, "Great, that's finale. I'll take it." <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and so like that was the arc. That we had a story already where Lawrence Fishburne's character was going to date somebody age appropriate. You know, that was like, you know, Colonel's story idea that had been kind of wrestling around. And from there, we're like, okay, we can take that and we can like make him fall in love because we've never seen him do that. You know, we wanted to change the character because he'd kind of been a ne'er do well absentee father, even though he'd been living in the house. And we're like, if he's going to get together with Ruby, then we need to change the character. He needs to go through something. Let's break his heart. Let's have him say, I'm a changed man, meet somebody who's age appropriate, has these feelings. And we were able to kind of tell a different kind of, a couple kind of stories uh, with Loretta Devine in that space. And then we broke his heart and we got him together. So we had like the bookends and I'm like, oh, that's our arc this year. And for Anthony's character, Dre, it was also like seeing his dad in, his, in a new light, sitting there going like, this was the relationship I had with my father. Now 
I can see him as somebody who's like heartbroken and cries and does all this other kind of stuff. Wow. And so that was easy. The second year after it, we had the pandemic. And so that was kind of like our kickoff to where we were going, you know, and, and, and then we didn't really know how things were going to end, but like we had enough stuff to kind of get us through. It's also a network for the most part. You're like, all right, we need our premiere. We need our finale. You need a Christmas episode, probably a Halloween episode. Like there's like something balanced. And you're trying to hit these markers in yeah, like yeah. time and space that like take up a lot of the tent poles. Um, and then the last year was, was we only did 13 and, you know, we knew that was the finale. So it was kind of like making sure we sent off every character appropriately. So yeah. was Laura Guten and Jonathan Groff, were they there? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. they're awesome. They're great. Uh, I mean, such a great staff. And like yeah. Groff, like Laura, like you have to understand Laura and I, like we, we have offices next to each other now, like, and having somebody you can so trust and rely on um, as a sounding board. She's so funny. Um, she was great. She was like genuinely my right hand. And Groff did something that like, I've never seen anybody do in this business, which was like Groff ran the show and, you know, he stepped back to do his own development because he ran it in season at the beginning. And then at the season five, he came in and co-ran it with Kenny Smith. And then season six, when I did it, uh, Groff was a consultant and he was so gracious in allowing me to make it show the, the show I needed it to be at that point for me to succeed That's awesome. and not be like, here's what it should be. Here's what you do. And like, I don't know if I'd have that patience and that ability. He helped me a ton <laughs> in editing, you know, cause nobody ever looks at the director's cuts because director's cuts make you want to, you know, basically commit seppuku, you know? And like, he, yeah. he you know, it's like, it's crazy. And he would look at the director's cuts, edit them down, make them these things. And then I would recut his cut. And then you're sitting there and you're like, this is as professional a guy as it is, you know? And I was like, I mean, I felt like that. I did better version of that joke, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> right now. And he just was support. And like, again, and so cool. having people like that, Yvette Lee Bowser on the show at the beginning, we're talking like people with hundreds and hundreds of years of television experience. It was nuts. That were you, that you know, coming from all those shows you came on and then all of a sudden you're expected to edit, you're expected to be on <laughs> set. So, I, the the verb grooming has taken on a new thing, so I, <laughs> I want to use that. But like, were you was was John or Kenya bringing you into editing and bringing you on set to sort of help you into this, or was it all of a sudden like, hey, go talk to Lawrence Fishburne yeah. and tell him he's fucking up, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like shit. We had a big set culture with the writers. Like, because we'll basically be like, eh, 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 we don't like this. Get out of the way. We don't. I mean, let me talk to Tracy and Anthony and tell them what's going on. Like, even as like, I remember early on, as soon as I got there, Kenya just had this expectation that like, if you're a PoEP or whatever, you have this experience. And it may be like third day, and there was something that was just not working. And it's early in the show, so just stuff never works. It's always fun to go back and watch the first seasons of shows and be like, oh, they're just figuring this out. Like, there was like some gag that was just like you know his daughter's getting ready to date and instead of a guy being there it's just like the grim reaper everything just didn't work you know and it just we didn't know what was funny about it and you're trying to fix that but he's just basically like hey go on set and make sure that works and you're like uh -huh. okay yeah let's go do that but like <laughs> as soon as you get that you get empowered like that and you know you have the experience all of it is just telling the story and that's the thing that was most helpful you're like we were very clear in the story we're trying to tell and the kind of humor and the jokes and the actors were so good that it was mostly kind of just like, all right, well, what's our North Star? This is what this beat's got to be. This is what, it, what this moment's got to be. And so you just kind of like would try to translate that to whether it was cast or director or whatever was going on to give us the best version of it as possible. And that's the lesson that like when you got into editing, when I got into editing and I hadn't spent a lot of time there, I'm just like, that's all the job is again, is like it's a rewrite of the story. 
making sure the story is clear and the humor is clear. It's it's kind of keeping to go through that and allowing the people like post is the best because like all the music and sound people actually make the show. That's the, everything else is just kind of like make believe until they dress it up and allowing them to do their jobs, you know? And in, the, in those tough moments, did you have a little uh, angel or devil Mike Henry on your shoulder saying, make it a shit, <laughs> make it a shit joke, make it a shit joke? <laughs> uh, I, I do. I, I mean, like we had one episode, I forget what season it was, season two, I think it was. We're literally, and it was just wild. We had like Matt Thapson in the episode. I don't even remember what was going on. Like toward like the end of, toward the end of whatever season we were in, especially after the show had success and Kenya's so ambitious, he'd be like, hey, I'm trying to get these movies off the ground. We're trying to do these spinoffs. And we would call it garbage time. Cause it was, it was just like everybody, <laughs> off, we're unloading the benches, right? Yeah. And it's sitting there and you're like, and it's, you're doing 22, I think we're doing 24 episodes. So like episode 19 to 23, before you get to the finale, people are kind of paying attention, but it's a yeah. lot of just like, let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> and we had one episode where Anthony's character like one of his kids started hanging out with like a guy who was like tech rich, you know, yeah. and the joke was, and I'm like, can't even believe, again, that's how successful you were, where he embarrassed, he tried to like keep up with the Joneses and he was failing and he realized he failed because he thought the man's humidor, cigar humidor room was a bathroom and he took a shit in <laughs> the man's humidor. Yeah. Yes. So like, literally, we're like, well, we're, we're doing this. I don't know on set. And they're like, of course, like, you've got all these production designs. We had this fantastic woman, Maxine, who was like, doing amazing production design stuff. And I'm like, she's so dignified and brilliant. And this is like the humidor that, that gets well, shit it needs in. to look enough, like, you try to explain it. It's like, it needs to look enough like a bathroom that a gross man. Yeah. <laughs> And then she's like, well, what's he, what's he doing? That, that stuff awesome. matters. I'll tell you, like, my, my problem with beef, and here's a spoiler alert, is, like, at the end of the episode when he, like, pissed all over her bathroom, I was like, that doesn't look like real piss. Like, just use piss. I was, like, I was upset. I was like, so yeah, you, you clearly just put, like, some sort of soda or something, and you're like, well, we can't show piss. And then that. I was thrown off. But, uh so before we we let you go, I is there yeah. an episode of Blackish or episodes of Blackish like that are your favorite or that moved you to tears or that like you you look back on and say like this was the pinnacle of it or is it more the legacy of the whole thing and having done it? I think like I'm I'm like such a process over results kind of person because I listen to a lot of sports podcasts and that's what all the coaches say. But like, <laughs> and not to be saccharine about it, but like literally that like we shot the last episode two years ago and everything is the relationships i made with the people you know you brought up yeah. laura Guten. like yeah. like that's all it is like because my lived experience really was the the hours and hours and days and days and weeks and years working with people and all the crew and and honestly too like shit man like we did an entire 20 something episodes during the pandemic. We yes. were the first shows to go back. You know, we're live. Mm -hmm. People are like genuinely, like, I remember getting on the a call with like ABC Legal at some point because we don't really know what we're getting into, you know? And we have the masking and the six feet and all this other kind of stuff. And I wrote a letter to the crew before we started saying how, uh, how happy I was that we were back, how much it was great that we all knew each other and could trust each other, and how that 
I've been assured. And like, I was, had, I was like way over my head. We're on these calls with like epidemiologists, like from three different continents and talking to people. And it's just, it's crazy. And you're sitting there and I'm saying, I've been assured that if we, we stick with these protocols, that we will be safe and do all this other kind of stuff. And then I get a call and we're dealing with the lawyers and they're like, well, we don't know if you can put, keep this in the, your letter. And I'm like, if I can't say this, then we can't shoot. What are we doing? If I can't, because people were afraid they were going to lose their home, they're going to bring it back to their families. This is all before the yeah. vaccine. Yeah. And so literally every time we would have like a positive test or at the end of a week, I would write another letter to the crew. And like, when wow. you do that kind That's of incredible. stuff, like, and literally I remember talking to people, you know, and they just be like, Hey man, look, I know it's cheesy, but like those, those meant a lot. You know, and like, and it, and to me, that was the job I was doing. Everybody talks about what's the job of a showrunner. And to me, it's accountability. Like if the joke doesn't work, it's on me. We have a problem on set. It's on me. If we can't, we can't figure out what to do. It's on me. And it was such, there was so much going on. And like those kind of things are what I take away from it. And it's nice. It's also like we do TV in a vacuum. And so every now and again, people are just like, oh man, I love that episode. I love that thing. But like, quite purposefully, like we talked about with me and stand-up, is like, I'm not used to engaging with an audience and getting that, like, acceptance or rejection. And so, like, I have to get enough out of the lived experience to make it worth it. And I enjoy it. I do enjoy making television. I love it. I think there's nothing better. It's so collaborative. It's awesome. But um, yeah, that's that's why we we haven't had you on to this point because it's it's a show for writers by writers who hate writing. (laughs) And I was like, he doesn't hate writing. I know. So I don't know what we're going to talk to him about. (laughs) But that's what was so well said. Yeah. And and great points about show running. I'm learning because for me, it was uh, puns and references. Yeah. Courtney's a a great leader. And and to just... <laughs> distinguish between the two of us is I had a show on the air on ABC at the same time, and Sony called me and said, "Hey, we want to sell ABC on the fact that you'll go back to work. You'll be the only show back, and that maybe they'll then pick up your show." And I said, "Absolutely not. <laughs> to battle." Categorically, no. <laughs> so easy to work with. Yeah. So anyway, I applaud you and and thanks so much for joining Thank us you. today, man. It's oh awesome. my god, I and love if, your if podcast. If Philly wins the Super Bowl, we'll have you. We'll have you back. Yeah. Oh, I'm that would be, be so obnoxious. That would be so obnoxious. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the Super Bowl. We lost to Kansas City. It was a disaster. Oh. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Gordon. you. Awesome. All right, be good. Thanks, man. Thanks. Right. Take care. Appreciate it. Oh God, Courtney's yeah. so nice, and yeah. he's got—he's so funny, and he's just—he's got wise. Such, he's also wise. He's wise. Yeah. Yes, he's got a healthy uh, perspective on writing, For which real. we do not share. Sorely lacking in these. Sorely <laughs> lacking. Uh, very inspiring. All right, um, but now it's time for a portion of the show we like to call Top Five. Top Five. God, we sound good. <laughs> Um, all right, this was mine this week, and you're welcome because this was very easy. Um, this week, top five sequel drop-offs. This basically means top five sequels that sucked. There was a good original movie, uh, and then this one was terrible. So I'm going to start with number five, and you might not even remember this movie, called The Two Jakes. Oh, oh yeah. The okay. Two Jakes was it's the... It's The Two Jakes. <laughs> it's the two Jakes. Forget about it, Jake. It's the two Jakes. So Robert so, Evans was in that, right? Was he? I believe I, he's he's in it with Nicholson. Oh God! Well, that's part of the disaster, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, going back to his acting roots, do we get a little impersonation from you, Goldie, on that? 
Uh, no, I'd have to hear the impression okay. to All then right. do the my The two impression. Jakes. Like any good impressionist, I have to hear someone else do it. Goldie, <laughs> you and Craig could be the two Jakes. <laughs> Craig will be a Jake and you will be a Jake. Goldie, you'll write it. Craig will star. <laughs> um, so yes, Chinatown was fantastic. The two Jakes, not so much. Number four for me, RoboCop. Two. Uh, oh, oh, of course. What a disaster. <laughs> Robocop, the first one, is awesome. It's like yes. kick-ass. It's funny. Uh, it was smart, and it was action-packed. Robocop 2 sucked. <laughs> um, number three in this almost the same year, exact same vibe, Predator 2. Oh. Predator 2 with Danny Glover and I believe Gary Busey. Um, Predator 1 was awesome. Kick ass. Go in the jungle. Fight the, Have Arnold fight this thing. Predator 2, not so much. I remember a long scene on the subway with the Predator, which was just terrible. Um, number two for me. I'm guessing neither of you have seen this. Highlander 2, <laughs> The not. Quickening. Nope, okay, so Highlander 2, colon, The Quickening. Highlander was a very good sort of sci-fi medieval kind of movie from the early 80s, which was surprising. It was a little movie, and it it outperformed what it should have done. Highlander 2, god-awful. <laughs> um, and number one, I, I would be shocked if this wasn't on both of your lists, Godfather 3. <laughs> After yeah. 1 and 2 yeah. being fucking amazing, Godfather tr- 3 was a piece of garbage. Yes. All right. Who's next, JC? It is I. It is I. Okay, so uh, my I actually realized I haven't seen very many sequels. So mm. uh, my number five is Grease Two. Yes, I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> I, I feel like Grease. a lot of people, women, kind of hold on to Grease Two as like it was awesome. It was terrible. <laughs> I hated it. Um, number four. I mean, d- Dumb and Dumberer. Does that really count oh. as? A- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you're talking to one of the people who punched it up. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you, but sorry. she's right. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> it it was did not have the magic of the original. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, number three, Son of the Mask. Is that oh, the sequel to yeah. the Mask? Yeah. Did you the Jim Carrey? Movie, yes. you know, and who yes. was in the? Do you remember? I don't who was even in know. Uh, but you're you're on to Jim Carrey movies, by the way. <laughs> That's true. Um, <laughs> I feel like Jamie, I want to say Jamie Kennedy. That makes yes, me wrong. Oh, yes, nice. and, and Alan. Yes, Jamie Kennedy, Alan Cumming. Anyway, yeah. um, I'll, I'll say I've never enjoyed Alan Cumming in anything. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I thought that was a joke. And his oh, presence alone a, is enough an to make joke. me go, "I'm such out." An e- so such fertile. an easy joke. There, it's a fertile. Fertile ground. Wrong hole, Nicole. <laughs> never, also never enjoyed Alan coming in anything. Yeah. Uh, Alan coming tears his dick off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, baby. Um, number two, Zoolander 2. Yeah. 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 Big disappointment. Yes. And uh, number one, I actually didn't have Godfather 3 on here, but it was suggested by uh, our friend Chris Long. But my number one is Blair Witch 2. Oh, yeah, Book of Shadows or something like that. Yes. Yeah, good list. So so these are based on my my real enjoyment of like what came before them and then just the letdown, obviously, of not living up. Uh, Number five is both Hangover sequels. 
Oh. Yeah, I really enjoyed the first Hangover movie, and then they just made the same movie two more times, yes. worse and worse. Yeah, no Brody Stevens. That was the problem. No. Oh. Uh, number four is the TV show Dallas, the remake, because oh, yeah, I yeah, loved yeah, the yeah. original Dallas. Yeah. Nice. Instantly out. That's good. I love Dallas. that you broadened to TV. That's good. Uh, well, wait till you see what I do at number three. Oh. Every Rolling Stones album after Tattoo You. <laughs> oh. oh, wow. That's great. All of them. Yeah. Garbage. Yep. <laughs> uh, number two, and again, based on the anticipation followed by the disappointment, is the Sopranos movie. Oh, Ooh. yes. Many Saints of Newark. Yeah. Really and you could, could I almost say the Deadwood movie as well, but I'll, yeah. I'll really say the Sopranos. Them. But number one, disappointment. And again, only based on the, the magic of when I saw the first one first few and then waited 20 some years for the new bill and ted where they're depressed oh Oh, Oh, yes wow i'm so glad i never i i couldn't bring myself to watch it no yeah it didn't (laughs) look good just did not look good Wow. Um, yep. And some honorable mentions there that I'm pissed that I didn't include. Back to the Future 2. God, Back to the Future was so fucking good, and 2 was such a mess. Oh, I love them um, all. And then every, like, to, to take a page out of Goldie's book, every Matrix after the first Matrix. That almost made my list, yes. Yeah. What yeah. about Caddyshack 2? I thought you guys were... Oh, right. yeah. I forgot about it. Yeah, I don't there's... like the original so much that I cared, though. Like, right. a lot That's of people are like, point. Caddyshack's amazing, and it's like, Caddyshack's okay, I get fine. That. But Caddyshack <laughs> yeah. 2 had a good... Good uh, title after the colon. Caddyshack 2, Back to the Shack. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's what we'll be doing next week. Yes. Ooh. And maybe we're in a little bit of a negative barrel, and I apologize. I didn't no. think about that when I had this topic. But the top five things that annoy you. Ooh. Oh. Is it like pet peeves or just... Can be you whatever it? you want. Yeah. Okay. Oh, the, wow. The distant sound of a leaf blower. Ooh, annoying. That's annoying. <laughs> Could be... When your throat's itchy. I don't know. Yes. So annoying. Let's totally. learn about you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A lot of candidates leaping to mind. All right. That's a good topic for next week. And as a reminder, next week we'll be talking to Josh Mankiewicz. You didn't do that, <laughs> did you? You didn't do that. Um, we're excited. Josh Mankiewicz from Dateline. Send us those emails if you've uh, got them. And uh, now let's close the show as we do <sighs> every week on a high note. Oh, so long. Isn't the world wonderful? Filled with, filled with high notes. Um, all right, I'll go quickly. This is a, a weird thing. So uh, my wife, Tall, is away this week. She is on the, a much-needed and well-earned vacation. So it's me holding down the okay. fort with the three dogs and Levy. But one of our dogs, and I've mentioned her on here before, Dutch, very old, very old. And she's been declining. How old is she? She's so old. Uh, she saw Cher. I don't know. Um, <laughs> anyway, she's been declining for years, but it started to get more rapid right before Tall left to the point where we had scheduled her to be euthanized. Aww. Literally the day after tall and, left. And do they get a discount if they also do you? Or <laughs> I know. I was trying to get a group rate, see, what, see who else we could throw into it. So, but the, the, the thing about that is like, and tall as she's leaving is saying like, okay, well, they're coming tomorrow at one. Just see how uh, she does tonight. And if by, you know, some miracle she's seems better, you can call it off. 
But if not, you know, when they euthanize her, hold her in your arms. And I'm dreading, like, this is just all shaping up to be a fucking nightmare. And we've been through this several times. So miraculously, that night, when when Tall is gone, all of a sudden, Dutch is a little perkier. She's mm. eating all her food hungrily. She's walking around and, like, not falling. So I, I called it off. Aww. And so literally Thank now God. we're two or three days out. And every time I pick up Dutch to go take her to piss outside, I'm whispering to her. I'm like, you have no idea how <laughs> I am your God. <laughs> so the high they, note is that she's still here. Yay. When they do that... Um, and they give your dog that injection. Do they wear a black bag over their head? <laughs> yeah. No, they don't they don't give her a shot. It's the black bag over the head and a giant axe. Oh, then, <laughs> God. Uh, well, but also a well, hidden a hidden note of that is, you know, Tal's like, well, just hold her in your arms when they do it. I'm like, don't they uncontrollably shit every time? <laughs> like, yeah. I don't know if I want that. Uh, I can't yeah. even imagine. I know. All right. Uh, Other high notes. I'll go. So uh, neither one of my kids has ever really shown like that they're taking after me at all much. Yeah. I mean, they, they they do in little ways, but like not, you know, there's I've, I was always waiting for the kind of like, oh, it's a little me running around. And that right. just hasn't been my experience. But, um, so my older daughter, like just kind of unbeknownst to me, signed up for mock trial. Wow. And, um, oh, yes. Has been like doing really well at it. And it's kind of like making noise about doing debate. I've not encouraged this wow. at all. But it, it really is the That's interesting amazing. thing of nature versus nurture where you go, wow, like, okay, I guess I am your dad. <laughs> yeah. Does she That's know awesome. about your history? That so it's, it's kind of so cool. cool. And my younger one just did this improv class. And afterward, the teacher came up to me and was like, you know, she she actually is like super funny, which a lot of it's You've for my wife, who's yeah, a I was gonna very say that's, that's improviser. Step. That's yeah. <laughs> but it's also like, oh, it's it's kind of nice that you know to see in their personalities like at least a little bit of me. Is oh, cool. yeah, that's so cute. And wait, that's does awesome. she know about your your debate history? Oh, does she? I don't she? really yeah, want to yeah, go. Just so you know, I was metal. like. I was like fucking awesome at it, and like the the be- like I don't, who needs to hear that? But right, I right. I tell her I did it, and I'm like, right. you know, if you have questions, I'll tell you what I. That's so I'll cool. give you my archaic knowledge. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what so was cool. what was the what was the thing that when we had the other debate guy on, you did like a standing no prep. I something? did a standing no prep one ar and the, yeah. the uh, <laughs> semifinals at St. Mark's in Detroit. I love it. Oh, gold gold Latin Santucci. <laughs> A lot of gold black. <laughs> Holding that up. And Santucci to taste. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so my high note is a little different than usual. Mine is more of an offer to the both of you Ooh. about last week's stop. <laughs> last oh, week's okay, top right. five. Um, I know that Goldie's, one of Goldie's was that he wanted to sing, and I would love to offer... In any way, we could record something, we could do a voice lesson, we could do whatever, and it would be in a bubble with no judgment. And then yeah. for you, Alec, I don't, yeah. I, for, I mean, I feel like you have your guy <sighs> friends, but I don't know if you have a female friend that you can reach out to and be like, hey, 
I am struggling to stand up for myself. I am struggling to do this. Can you, I know this makes you uncomfortable, but I would like to offer this as a wholehearted friend. Aww. The, this open invitation to reach out if you're struggling with that. Uh, so. That's so sweet. I mean, he God. has so many female friends. <laughs> oh, the list is so long. <laughs> enduring, enduring. <laughs> Um, JC, that is so sweet. That is so nice. Yes, thank you. Well, yeah, of course. I wish I could remember any of your five. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. But that was like, that's my high note. I was like, this oh, is what I'm going to so do. Nice. So. Yeah, yeah, wow. Very nice. Wow. I hope you guys at you least sandbag. consider that's it. Emotion. No. <laughs> yes. It's, it's considerate and we will consider it. It's very nice. <laughs> and, and I, Goldie, I'm, I'm available for a duo. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that was so fun this week. Thanks to Courtney Lilly. Goldie, yes. you ran a great, great interview. interview. Thank all of you for listening, and thank both of you for being awesome. Thank and you. we will talk to you and Josh Mankiewicz next week. Can't rip my dick off. That was fun. And it stops right now. Nobody quit on three.